2: Hello, everybody. Today I have with me Dr. Jennifer Clary Lemon. She is associate professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada, where she teaches rhetorics and writing. Her research interests include rhetorics of the environment, theories of affect, writing and location, material rhetorics, critical discourse studies and research methodologies. She joins me today with Dr. David Grant, uh, who is Associate Professor at the University of Northern Iowa, where he teaches courses in writing studies and professional writing program. His current research explores the thermodynamics of information to understand pluriversal occasions for rhetorical consideration. They have together edited this volume titled, Decolonial Conversations in Post-Human and New Material Rhetorics, published by the Ohio University Press last year. Hello, Dr. Clary Lemon and Dr. Grant. How are you today? Great. Thanks
0: for having us. Yeah, it's good to be
2: here. As always, I'd like to start uh, with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were your some initial ideas when you started writing this book?
0: Do you want me to take it first? Sure. Yeah,
1: it's the conference.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So uh, David and I did not know each other before we edited this collection, but we both went to a conference and we were put together on a panel, um, the Cultural Rhetorics Conference, and it was a panel on um, thinking about the title of the book: Decolonial Conversations in Posthuman and New Material Rhetorics. Um, but what we found when we arrived um, was that it was three white scholars talking to a room of of people about these ideas. And so, I think it really left us with more questions, perhaps, than than answers, or or more questions than our own individual talks. Um, answered at the time that we were there, and so we really wanted to continue that conversation um, and that critique of these ideas that clearly we held um, dear, but were not without uh, a great de- degree of, of complication.
1: Yeah, And I'll just add to um, for me. I think we addressed a little bit. It seemed to us that there was something of a, of a moment uh, at that at that time. This is sort of I think right before the pandemic, and so a lot of us, especially white scholars, who, uh, you know, Jen had already published a, a book on the Anthropocene, and I had been doing a lot of eco-critical and eco-composition work for, for quite a while. Um, and with the sort of turn to objects, the sort of material turn in the humanities, I think a lot of us, especially those of us, you know, engaged in a lot of very white, Eurocentric scholarship, we we're kind of wondering, like, how do we, you know, how do we deal with certain political commitments that that we hold um without replicating the problems that they came with the past. And so again, you know, as, you know, three white um scholars talking to uh, a much more diverse and much more um, you know, non Eurocentric audience, it really kind of hit home that that there needed there needed something needed to be done here. Um and we didn't know what we could do. Um, but we we said about having some conversations about what this might look like, what kinds of interventions could we make, what kinds of limitations, you know, what couldn't we do? Um, And Mm -hmm. so that really kind of formed the genesis for, you know, we need to not make this about um, white folks telling um, colonized people what they ought to be thinking. Yeah,
2: that that puts it very nicely. (laughs) Uh, What was the process of, collecting these S's like, was there an open call for papers or did you sort out specific people?
1: It seemed to me it was kind of, it was a bit of both, but we did do an open call at first. um, And I hosted that on my university server and and that went out. Um, And um, and that got some good responses, but there was a few, there there was, and there were some folks that we really were kind of hoping, but didn't really feel like we could approach um and and they they responded but um but i think and correct me if i'm wrong jennifer but i i think um um uh dr rain anderson um i think we i think didn't we kind of reach out to her and kind of say hey you'd be great um i think once so
0: once we Mm -hmm. got once we got um uh, proposals in, and then we we vetted them and saw kind of what we had to work yeah. with and how they would fit together. We started really seeing a, a shape for the volume. Yeah. Um, so when we kind of had confirmed uh, chapters, then we reached out to Joyce yeah. Rain Anderson once um, once we had the kind of bulk of the work and said, "Would you be interested in writing a forward to this book?" Yeah. So so that's kind of how the the process um, came to be. Mm-hmm. We're lucky she said yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's been a a leader for quite a while. So, very honored.
0: Yeah. And uh the
2: conference that you um just mentioned, uh it's mentioned the name, the name of the panel is mentioned in the book, and I found it very interesting because it was titled Post slash D slash colonial rhetorics. Um and I found it very interesting because often there is this um division for lack of a better word between post-colonial and decolonial. Um how do you Understand the difference between these two, or is there a difference between these two? And I also ask because, for this book, you chose decolonial conversation and not postcolonial conversation.
1: I mean, for, I can answer for me. I don't. You know, I mean, I, in some sense, you know, my thinking continues to kind of evolve and shape around this too. Uh, you know, for me, I I'm not going to speak for for Jennifer. Um, postcolonial and decolonial are two different things um you know the decolonial for me is kind of like i said you know there is a certain political commitment that you have to kind of go into with the decolonial it really is decolonizing right and not as a metaphor uh that has been said you know has been said very often um but it is a real kind of material work um to undo to disentangle to cut at some of these things that have been put in place and so um one can, you know, that's different from just being simply after colonization and going like, well, okay, that happened, right? Uh, Decolonial work really is that political commitment. So, I'll let I'll let Jen say what but she wants to on (laughs) that. It may be different from mine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I would agree. I I also think about, you know, the post and post-colonial as being a time marker. Um, Whether we are currently post-colonial or not, in actuality is something quite different. And so I think that post-colonial then becomes a placeholder for a variety of critical viewpoints, um, literature and approaches that decolonial really does... um, suggest it doesn't it doesn't hold right it's not that kind of container for the um that range of work instead as as david said i see the decolonial as really a move toward action um, and not necessarily just in the gaze of history or the gaze of a critical lens or a literary gaze but really um with the intent of of shaping a future uh that does less damage
2: and for a future that does less damage you uh, you acknowledge in the book that indigenous sovereignty and futurity is confrontational because this is um this should not be metaphorical and and as consequently will not emerge from friendly understandings And um, the sentence you use here is very interesting to me because you said it requires a dangerous understanding of uncommonality and it undoes um, what we call is coalitional politics. Why do you say that? And what do you think academia should do when we are faced with these incommensurable differences and confrontational politics?
0: I mean, I think a lot of the... um... Maybe conversations around decoloniality suggest because we all see ourselves as in it together, right? We all academics who are maybe left leaning or feeling like we are progressive people. We think, well, but we're all in this together, and and we can um, we can organize around coalitional politics toward actions that we see as um, socially just. And I think that that's an important perspective, but I think that what uh, decolonial scholarship in particular offers us is this idea that, you know, it might not be in the way you think, and it might not be comfortable for people in power. And, And that's the problem with thinking about it in terms of coalitions, is it ignores that power is at the very heart of colonial action, and to decolonize means to reseat that power. And that usually, as we know, both historically and contemporarily, people with power are not so happy to be giving it up. And, and so that that reseating and readjusting of power is certainly a site of discomfort. And, um, and I think it's important to really think about the difference between, you know, difficulty and discomfort, and pain, and that it's okay to do this work and be uncomfortable. And it's okay to do this work and have it be difficult, because that's very different than the pain and suffering of millions of colonized people. And so that's really where i where I see um, the tension being a productive one, and that it's really okay to to sit with difficulty. and it's okay to be uncomfortable. and it's okay to be, frustrated and not like what's going on, but still recognize it as a very important um, process that deserves our attention. Yeah. I know that didn't get to the yeah. whole question, but David can answer the rest of it. it, was, it was, oh, it was the rest. But as, yeah, as, there as are two parts, and I think that was the first part.
1: <laughs> that was good, yeah. Uh, I And I would agree that, yeah, uh, it's sitting with these tensions, uh, the as you said, the receipt of power is never given over easily. It's not a, a coalitional ask, right? It is something that, you know, from Franz and on has always been, you know, it's been fraught with its own, you know, we're going to have to take it because – even the most progressive members of those who, who are privileged, privileged with power find ways to hold on to it, um, and 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 will will fight you for it. So, um, so that kind of work, I mean, you know, really leaning into that is a is a difficult one, especially because I myself am a, in a very privileged position uh, in multiple ways, and so, um, so yeah, doing that kind of work is. Um, also kind of a self-exploration um but as you're talking i'm also always brought back to the lessons that i've learned especially from indigenous people about really it's about relations right and it's about ongoing relations and the complexity um that comes out of looking at uh at both politics and just kind of uh, you know a a way of living that is centered around relations and relationship building um and maintenance rather than dealing with objects and subjects and the kinds of things that european um philosophies have have often you know chose to divide the world up in so um so yeah that kind of i mean to to me then that offers a, a kind of a I don't want to say a way forward, but it certainly offers a different lens that might bring together a different kind of provisional, temporary coalition uh, where not everybody has to agree on everything, where there can still be some, you know, there can still be some, eh, you know, t- real tension and maybe even some negative emotion or negative affect, but that can still be part of kind of that. That coming together and saying, well, you know, that doesn't matter because our relations are what they are and we understand those relations will change, they will transform, they will undergo certain things, you know, given certain kinds of of actions uh, and how they attune us to one another. So um, it's not easy work. It's not going to happen overnight. Um and so I try to, to really kind of think about that in, in, in a bit of a longer terms and in the shorter term, be a lot more kind of strategic and and tactical in terms of, I guess that's two different things, but, but a little more, you know, tactical in terms of what, what can, what can we do in the moment? Um, how do we come together? How do I sometimes just say, you know, gosh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I did a bad thing and, and I'm going to say, thank you for letting me know.
2: And I, I struggled with this idea a little, because there is this, um, there is this aspect of productivity, but then as you said, it's also dangerous. Um, could you give an example that, that helps the listeners or even me, um, appreciate this better?
1: Uh, sorry, the, the danger of it, the, the dangerous part.
2: Yeah. Um, but, and also productive at the same time.
1: Okay. So I guess I'm I'm thinking too, concretely, in what I just said, um, I remember, you know, just as a small thing, but I remember, you know, I think I was on social media and I sent something out and and I had said something about, you know, I think it was Lakota culture and, um, you know, admiring certain beautiful things about it and um, uh, uh, another indigenous culture who I'm very good friends with sent me a a private message and said, Hey, you know, I sat with this for a while, but I'm really upset because, you know, what you did there is you really objectified that culture, right? You're doing exactly what you're saying you don't want to do. And, and so, you know, again, it was a, it was a relational move. We were close enough um, that we could enter into a a potentially dangerous zone um, because of our relations. And I also, you know, thanked that person and said, you're you're right. Yeah, I did, you know, let me take that, let me take this time to self reflect, and to do things, perhaps differently to learn from it to shift the relations around a little bit, but under no circumstances was I, you know, in a position to defend or to deflect or do anything with that. But I had to really kind of sit with that a while. And And I still sit with it right it's still something that I I'm like yep I I will mess up (laughs) right um and so what you know what do we do with that right um there's no there's no purity here
2: um um, would you like to add something go ahead (laughs) um and Talking about relationships, um, you write about the pan-indigenous concept of all my relations. Um, can you tell us, for the listeners, what does this mean, and how does this help in this in our aim of decolonization?
1: Yeah. So yeah, and that's this has been kind of you know just a, a language thing as I'm learning you know I, I, as I as i work with groups whether they're navajo lakota now i'm working with Meskwaki here in iowa you know i i definitely can't help but you know take some language classes and learn some of the concepts and philosophies that that are are part of their storytelling and and culture and and science really um and their philosophies so um there is a kind of a pan indigenous you know all my relations we see that it can be trite and bumper stickery but um uh, i think it it speaks to at least in the north american indigenous um ways and 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 interactions they many of them many of the tribes and cultures that i've encountered and the folks have said that there is a something there's a saying there is a you know in in lakota it's Metake awasin in um in navajo um dene uh land there is a the concept of hojo um you know and they speak to these wider kinds of relational relational kinds of cosmologies to I guess put a term to it. Um and it's something that they can all kind of say, yeah, you know, we all kind of share in these sort of things. But when you drill down into it though, you can't necessarily say that they're all exactly the same. Because they're all, I mean, you know, the the Hojo, Hoge, for example, in Dene, is very, very different, um, not only because of the linguistic structure and the um, specific historical um Stories that the Dene people have in their history and their relationship with the land, which is in the landscape, which is frankly very different from, say, Anishinaabe, right? I mean, there's just, there's two totally different in, in themselves, very diverse and incommensurable. So while there's these touch points like relationality and what can reach out to a broad swath of colonized people, there's a moment there to pause and say, okay, but that doesn't make them all the same, right? Because if we start making them all the same, we're just recolonizing and we can't, we can't do that. So I try to tread very carefully around those kinds of things, recognizing that there are are, uh, points in common, but there are also, you know, a great many differences and we need to honor those differences because they're, they're as real as anything
0: else. Yeah. Thanks for that, David. I would also say that, um, you know, again, treading very carefully about any any notion of pan-Indigeneity, which is problematic um, in a lot of contexts, that um, the idea behind All My Relations is often used in terms of greeting, either at the front end of saying something or at the back end, is really acknowledging that um, when we deliver any words, we're not only delivering them to the humans around us but in fact every uh object every subject right <laughs> depending on how you divide up the world uh, alongside our our human kin so whether that's plants and animals or whether that's the space in which we you know sit uh, or the materials that um, that place is made up of that all of that is together making decisions and um, kind of having or bearing some rhetorical weight on the message that is about to be said or that has been said. So, um, so again, not to not to conflate any of these terms um, with one another, but but generally speaking, that acknowledges life beyond um, only human life in in thinking about. Why it is we come to say what we say, and you know how our words move people and non people around us. Um, and that leads very nicely to my next question. Um,
2: in the forward to the book, um, Joyce Anderson um, says that decolonization is unsettling and that it makes us aware of our own complacency in the unjust world that is right there. How does um, these decolonial conversations lead us to a post-human or a new material rhetorics? I mean, how does this... um, Because when we say decolonization, we first think of the colonization process through the human experience of it. And how does, for example... You want to um, enlarge, for a uh, lack of a better word, or make this a wider question about decolonization, even the non-human world or the material world.
0: I mean, I I think our intent in the book was really to bring these ideas of decoloniality and post-human and new material theory into dialogue with one another, and say, you know, generally speaking. Posthuman and new material uh, ways of viewing the world have been quite Euro Western in nature. Come from a very similar group um, of European philosophy, um, draw on a, the same cast of characters to frame their their thinking about ontologies and cosmologies when really there have been these ideas in place for millennia um, by colonized people. And so, you know, while a lot of white Scholars in institutions of higher ed tend to circulate the ideas put forward by new materialism or posthumanism. They do that to the exclusion of these um, ideas and uh, ontologies that have been put forward by um, colonized people for a very, very long time. And so, I think what we wanted to do was to see in these two ways of imagining um, our our knowledge of the world if there were ways that they could touch and make sense of one another in productive ways that could help us all think a little bit more um, critically, but also generatively about the world and about all of our roles. Uh, for example, in colonizing non human others, for example, I mean, um, although, obviously, we're dealing with currently the the extirpation and and genocide of of many colonized peoples at the same time a lot of my other work is um is done with species at risk which deals with extinction and extinction extinction rates of of non-human species that um you know are at risk and or or have been driven to extinction by all people and of course i think western folks bear the brunt of responsibility there Um, but i think that there are ways that these conversations can can also help us think think really critically about current ecologies and environmental management um, which is not what you ask but but really i think that bringing those two things together and see seeing the way that their edges move up against one another to imagine you know are they simply incommensurable or are there ways of, of thinking and borrowing and worlding from um, from both directions that can be worthwhile to to scholars who want to do this work?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that, that idea of worlding, I think, really kind of hits at it. Um, you know, I think it it what we one of the things we're trying to do anyway is is allow this generation of what uh, a lot of uh, decolonial scholars are calling kind of a pluriversality. Right. Um, so one of the things that the collection does is you know, by bringing scholars who are working in the Pacific Northwest, as well as who are working on the border, as well as, you know, South Texas refineries. Uh, and, and it is very North American you know, centric. Right. Uh, I think there's one that has, uh, you know, allusion- that talks about New Zealand and, and the Wurahangi River. Um, but it is pretty North American centric, but still. It brings together a, a diverse coalition of possible worldings as many different decolonial options. Right, there's no one particular way in which um, in which anyone can world. You know, and as I said, we have relations, and that might be very different in the desert southwest with the Diné, as opposed to the northwoods of uh, the United States and, and uh, southern Ontario with Anishinaabe so um so there's no one particular way but there are many pluriversal options here and that's i hope i hope what this book does i hope that's what many of these contributors uh follow through with in in their communities and i hope that's what readers take away from this is is a sense that um that we don't we don't have a particular plan there's no particular solution to these kinds of things but there are many different options and that includes the non-human as well as the human
2: Um, And you um, say in the introduction that your aim is not only to bring together these diverse set of voices, but then to also listen rhetorically. And there is a very interesting sentence that comes there is, listening is material and embodied. Could you elaborate um, on how it is uh, material and embodied?
0: Quite the question. I mean, there's so many ways (laughs) that that listening is those things. And it I mean, it depends on if you want to talk about the way that sound travels and bounces against things in the world and how it then appears to us as um, something to be listened to in our ears uh, to thinking about the ways that we listen to the world around us that has nothing to do with language. Um, so anyone who might have a, a pet out there, for example, I have two little dogs and a lot of the work that I do with trying to figure out what they're what they're what they're thinking what they're doing how they're making sense of the world has to do with me listening to them in ways that is very embodied right that that could uh have sound attached to it but it might also have the wag of a tail or you know the the pace of a day um so i i read a recent article um I can't remember, it was a popular press piece about Can Dogs Tell Time? Because it was talking about the nature of someone's pet and how um, when it was a child leaving for the day and taking the bus to school, but somehow... Five minutes before the mm-hmm. bus could even be heard in the neighborhood, the dog would go to the door. So the dog would somehow be able to tell the time that the child was going to come to the door in a way that couldn't be encapsulated with, with a kind of logical argument that, oh, the dog just had better hearing and heard the bus further away than we could hear it and then got ready. Mm-hmm. And really talked about a, a kind of um, bodily thinking that the dogs in particular are doing that is based on for example smell like olfactory senses and how the concentration of a person sent in a in a house or in a room at the beginning of the day is overwhelming because we're getting ready and we're we're about to leave the house and so the whole house stinks of our humanness and then over the course of the day slowly goes downhill um, and so the dog understands that when the the you know concentration of scent is that a certain low degree in the day, they know that their person usually comes home right about then. So they're making these kind of calculations, right? And that has nothing and everything to do with the idea of listening as an embodied and rhetorical act, right? That there are ways to listen to the world um, that maybe go beyond what, what we as humans necessarily think of, like, well, when you listen, you just stop talking. <laughs> That's that's kind of our, our human idea of, of listening uh, as opposed to, you know, when you listen, you not only stop talking, but you pay attention to other modes of being in the world as well. It's very long-winded, but I had to slip in mm-hmm. that story about the dogs for sure. Yeah, right? I,
1: I've, heard that. I've heard that too. Yeah, that's, that's good and, and well-explained.
2: Yeah, and yeah. is this how you also... Um, link what we had been talking about confrontational politics and how that can be made positive as a as a force for the good is listening this this material and embodied listening part of that would you agree to something like that
0: i mean i don't know that the good is the outcome i mean i think we're all working for for more um just political ends, but I think that that's not always good for everyone and that somebody is usually going to suffer. And so it's hard to kind of pivot it as, you know, will it will it all work out in the end if we just do this X, Y, and Z kind of a thing, as opposed to, I think, about um, Rosie Ray notion of affirmative ethics, right? That what is joyful is not necessarily what is happy or what is good but what opens us up into taking in more of the world as opposed to shutting us down. And so in that way, I think that, you know, an embodied listening project or rhetorical listening, you know, when done well, opens us up to more of the world, even if that means it opens us up to more pain, because the Mm -hmm. world can be painful, or Mm -hmm. more trauma, because whites have perpetrated a lot of Harm on the, a lot of people over time, right? That's not good. Nobody wants to hear that, but it's an important part. It's joyful in that it opens us up to uh, more of the world, so that perhaps we could change where we are and make it into something a bit better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would say. I think I feel the same way. I, I sometimes couch it in terms, in the terms more of of healing. Um, in a, in a, a larger sense of healing than just physical healing or trauma healing, um, because things like traumas, these things go on through generations, right? They're not um, they're not easily, you know, just recuperating, and then you you somehow knit yourself back together or you knit your community back together. But it is a much more active kind of of healing um, that uh, that will will take struggle. It will take a lot of um, a lot of work. Uh, at minimum to get through. It's not, you know, these things can't just, you can't just sort of, you know, take your foot off a, a certain pedal or lever and think, oh, well, then now that's done. So everything will just go back. I mean, we have ravaged this planet. We continue to feel its effects. We have ravaged so many other people uh, as Europeans, um, as nations, nation states, and as as um, as groups and cultures. Um, and, and they have in turn, you know, uh bumped up against others so it's not just a a simple dialectic of europe versus the world it's europe kind of you know impacting uh i guess it's like I, maybe a better way is it's sort of this car crash right where um you ha- in order to heal from it it's going to take a lot of steps not only for the car but for the people in it um because everything is inside has sort of been shattered and battered about um and so um straighten yourself out after that is going to take some pain. It's going to take some work. And, um, and it really has to do with, yeah, with kind of you know relating to that in a different way rather than here's a simple good at the end. We don't We don't always know what that end is going to be.
2: Since we are at the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask, um, what do you hope the readers take from this book or what do you hope changes in academia?
0: I mean, what what I hope readers take is that these are not always incommensurable worldviews that I think that the contributors to this volume very creatively touch up against those limits and those connections over and over again. I mean, really, the, the book isn't, I mean, I appreciate you having us here today, but it's not really about us. It's really about the contributions to the volume that make it what it is and the really, um, you know, kind of what exceeded my expectations when we conceived of this project are how the contributors are really negotiating with such nuance um, these worldviews and these theories to give us ways through um, that are sometimes ways forward, but are sometimes considerations and reflections on our past or our present or thinking thinking about time altogether differently. So you know what, what I hope readers get is just that it that these conversations are possible because I think for a long time they've been held in real um, separation from one another and real critique. And I think critique is a good thing. I, I mean, I, I think um, you know I'm not I don't I don't think that we created this text to to really defend post human or new material thought but really open it up and say what do we have here what can we hold in in each hand and can we think about them as possibly in dialogue or not and and so i I hope readers are kind of going to take that with them and ask those questions and continue to to think about um cases in their local areas where there's an opportunity to think through these questions
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, with my earlier car crash metaphor, you know, we don't know the end. We don't know that the healing journey um, is always a transformative one. And so kind of my hopes for this, too, is is that um, that even just a small, you know, somebody's neighborhood can maybe be transformed because someone thinks about things um, in a more open way. As, as Jen is saying there right um or or maybe that somebody's project uh can help you know transform and heal just a, a little bit um uh, uh you know that's that's kind of my hope um that those things can can happen that these ripples will play out yeah
2: um before we say bye to each other can you tell us now about your future projects what are you working on right now and what can we hope to read from you in
0: the future? Sure. Um, well, I have a book coming out in August called uh, Nest Work, New Material Rhetorics for Precarious Species. And it talks about um, relationships between humans and non-humans that are put forward in mitigative infrastructure for species at risk. So if you are interested in birds and uh, non-human persuasion, that's kind of my... Um, project that's coming out next. And, and I'm working on an extension of that work right now with um, burrowing owls in um, in Southern Arizona. So that's what I'm working on. How about you, David?
1: So so I have, a um, let's see, I have a, a couple chapters coming out in a couple collections. One is on a um, uh, follow up to eco composition sort of 20 years down the road. Uh, another is a, a chapter in uh, about sensory rhetorics, and that's where the thermodynamics kind of comes in as a, a means to not, again, not put everything on the same page and say everything's going to work out, but as a way to negotiate these pluriversal options, right? Um, uh, really, just by saying, "Hey, you know, we've we've thought too long in the humanities of um, of." cosmology and ontology as you know it's a different epistemic perspectives on the world well no it's not it's different actual worlds um and so in order to kind of work across these incommensurable ontologies um just a a sense of of you know a a return to some sense of of how um relativity works i think might um I think it's been misunderstood and so it might uh, have a little purchase in helping us um, understand that your world's not my world and that's okay
2: yeah both sound like fascinating projects i wish you the best Um, Thank thank you thank you for taking the time now to talk to me and being here on this
0: podcast
1: thank you for having us
0: yeah thanks so much